set up your teleportation circle so that you can get around town. Well, well, not town, but you know, get around the country easier. I mean, if I have a teleportation circle, I'm probably using it to get around town. That's <laughs> yeah, that's I. <laughs> Downstairs where the fridge is. Ugh, hold on. Live for the Mundangerous Day Spa in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 253 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about what to do between adventures. But first the party travels last class in the Gates of Morning campaign. And later, the herbalist takes your woes away the natural way in the character creation forge. Ishan, we did not finish Castle Amber. No, no, we did not. And you know what? It's probably no one in particular's fault. Uh, no, it, it, it is. I, I, I place blame directly at uh, your feet, Owen oh, Dylan. Dylan okay. and Shane, it's, it's your fault. I don't know what finish. I did. I don't know what I did for this, but sure, fine, blame me. I'll be the I'll be the fall guy as usual. <laughs> it's because you took twenty minutes figuring out your new accent. <laughs> okay, <laughs> this is unfair that I keep getting shape change. <laughs> I've Look, had to you play. Fig- you figured out a dog voice really quickly. <laughs> yeah, a, a dog, a bugbear, a French aristocrat with an English accent. Don't ask. <laughs> Perfect. So if you are behind the times, Castle Amber is uh, what an original D&D module that has been updated to 5th edition by our friend Aram Vartian at God's Fall. And he is running us through it uh, and all the wacky and wild hijinks uh, on Twitch. Yep. At twitch.tv slash God's Fall or on the God's Fall podcast feed, which you can find on, you know, uh, Apple Podcasts and Google Play and all those places. Yeah. So join us for the ninth episode of our four shot. Uh, the, as we finally finish it, most uh-huh. definitely, 100%. Definitely going to happen this time. Yep, yep. You can also uh, check out my new podcast, uh, Co-op Mood, on Apple Podcasts and on Google Play and all of those places. Uh, Sally from the Castle Amber stream and from Stream of Blades and I are talking about video games. Uh, the first three episodes are up. The next episode will drop next Tuesday, so we're doing it bi-weekly. Um, but if you're interested in video games and want to hear us talk about good games and bad games and how games make us feel, um, yeah, check that out. Co-op Mood uh, or Co-op Mood Pod uh, on Twitter. Can you let me know when you guys do Tetris? <laughs> yeah, I'll let you know when we do Tetris. <laughs> Sweet. Uh, theme so, B all the way, okay? I'll let you know when we do the Diablo 2 episodes so you can relapse. <laughs> oh, no thank you i'll never come out speaking of never coming out where are we in the gates of morning campaign well the gates of morning campaign is our fifth edition DD game set in eberron a sequel of sorts to the original morning glory campaign and in central karnath in the insular city of vedakir the party is chasing a killer so they have decided to take the lightning rail 500 miles to Korth, the capital of Karnath, to deliver their friend Ephraim's body to his family, House Orion, to hopefully find out more information about why he was fighting for the Ondarians in the war, because that's illegal. So in the hour before the lightning rail departs, Lucky feels a ping in her mind, and Wilmo begins speaking through the Jurasco ring that she gave them, which was a gift from a long-ago gnomish lover in House Civis. I just like that I got you to say the phrase long ago gnomish lover. Okay. <laughs> you did do that. Congratulations, Ishan. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So she tells them that 
things have calmed down in House Drasco in the days since they were attacked, and she's pretty sure that they were attacked by enforcers who were taking orders from someone else higher up in the house. She's not sure who, though. She's still looking into it. But obviously, the attackers don't have a ton of information about them or the capabilities because they didn't know that they were all immune to poison. So Wilmo also admits that during the war, the secret Jurasco compound to the south that she oversaw was researching weaponized disease along with more traditional healing techniques. This is nothing deadly, she insists. She insists. <laughs> she insists. And there was no partner outside the house who would have known about it. So the party surmises that they were all somehow infected on the day of mourning, and now their spilled blood spreads the plague that's been going around Fedakir. The one you have denied all knowledge of to Inspector Sigor multiple times. In fairness, we didn't have any knowledge at the time we denied it. <laughs> you know what? That is a fair point. <laughs> so she also explains that the weapons project was run by Otho de Drasco, a sullen and difficult halfling that nobody liked, even though everybody acknowledged that he was absolutely brilliant. Last Wilmo heard, he had moved to the Fairhaven Enclave in Ondare after the war. So for now, she's going to lie low, but she asks the party to continue to investigate what happened to all of them and try to figure out exactly how their bodies were changed on the day of mourning and then report back to her. So the train cars of the lightning rail float a few feet above a line of conductor stones that stretch off into the distance and the ground rushes by with a quiet murmur of air. First class and standard cars are at the front of the train. The party, stuck in the back of the train in steerage, passes the time with cards and restless naps. And more than a hundred people are crammed into a single car along with animals in cages and children underfoot. It's like the bus I used to take from Boston to New York that costs uh, $10. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> you and the livestock. <laughs> so Lucky the Paladin swindles a few well-heeled visitors from the front of the train, making several peasants much wealthier. Her active or their act of contrition, I suppose. So about an hour past the town of Carlacton, the terrain begins to grow foggy, and the party hears a scream from the car in front of them that rouses them from their half-naps. They rush forward to see another one of the large, undead amalgam creatures that they defeated previously, climbing through a broken window. Its forearm has been transformed into a spear of bone, and that is now pinning a dead commoner to the floor. And we'll find out what happens next next week so this week uh we're gonna take a little break right we're not gonna do a, a real episode we're just gonna i don't know hand wave some stuff and and say that we accomplished uh, a recording sure yeah that's great it's uh it's podcast downtime we succeeded maybe with one small role mm -hmm. but i why roll right let's let's just all give ourselves advantage and uh and then we'll just succeed naturally because that sure. moves the story forward fine I accept. Cool. All right, so Shane, what is downtime? Is that the the stuff you ignore in between combats? Yes, that is the stuff you ignore. <laughs> <laughs> That's all the role-playing that you don't do. Downtime is the time between adventures, when the camera zooms out and time advances at sort of a catch-up pace, right? Um, even the term downtime sort of implies a game that has like an adventure or a mission structure where your uptime is when you are out in the dungeon fighting the, you know, gelatinous cubes. And the downtime is when you're back at town and safe and getting to do all the other things that you do as adventurers, like, you know, drink and carouse and 
um, follow up weird rumors about witches in the woods. Yeah, I think, you know, downtime often gets short shrift uh, because in a lot of narratives, the the kinds of media that we often base our games on, it's the part that gets skipped over or gets taken care of in a montage. Um, you know, in a Star Wars film, it might be a quick cut from, you know, leaving one planet to showing up at Coruscant and you know that a month passed. In a game, though, you can do a lot more with that time. Well, a lot of times, too, like in a in a movie like Star Wars, right, like you are catching a character on the last few moments of their downtime, right? Just before they get swept up into the adventure of the film. Right, the big stretch. Oh, wow, that was relaxing. Right, exactly. <laughs> like, uh, you know, who I just ran into on CantoBite was somebody gambling away for two months, and now they're like, you know, riding along in my ship. Downtime between adventures means different things to different genres, to different settings, right? So uh, in Star Wars, right, you might be spending a month relaxing on Coruscant if you are an appropriately privileged uh, character in the world, right? Uh, in like a Jason Bourne type game, that might be a couple hours on a train from Brussels to Paris, right? Like that's your downtime. That's your downbeat. That's your time where you're not on mission, where your your job is to decompress from the previous mission and prepare for the next one. Yeah, in an OSR game, you have to take downtime because yeah. how else are you going to heal at one hit point per week? Right, and that's that's a big <laughs> knock of some of those games is that like, cool, like downtime is months. Adventures are hours. Mm-hmm. Why? But hey, we got to know the blacksmith really, really, really well. <laughs> right. All right, so in an RPG, what purpose does downtime serve? So a, a big part of this is plot pacing, right? So in a little bit of session time, you can cover a lot of in-world time. So if you need the war on the Northern Front to progress a certain amount, like downtime is a great way of just, hey, we're going to spend a session figuring out what you did for three months, right? Yeah, yeah. this actually helps in having a game that's usually broken up into sessions that feature, you know, fast action combat that takes place over the course of maybe minutes actually makes sense in the narrative of an actual story, right? Like if you sort of like stack up combat to combat, you have these characters who are going from like level one to level 17 in three months in (laughs) actual like game time. I mean, you can go from level one to level five in five days, right? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. If if you have enough combat encounters, absolutely. And it, it doesn't make that much sense in world, but you know, you put a few months in here and call that a training montage, and that's how you got to level four, or you know, part of the quest or our journey on the airship or whatever takes a long time, and we're doing other things that have smaller impacts on like the mechanical numbers in our sheet, and now suddenly you have a um, you know a quest that took three years, an appropriate amount of time for a quest. Right. You also have the like plot pacing from the player play experience sense right which is sometimes you want to get a break from just stomping kobolds in the dungeon right like sometimes you want to do a little more role play and like mix up sort of the type of play that you have Uh, downtime provides that opportunity within the plot of the game that you're playing right like that's the opportunity to really expand beyond the four four wall confines of a dungeon room Hey, and when you're a powerful enough character, then stomping kobolds in the dungeon is your downtime. Right. <laughs> What'd you do for three months? I don't know. Cleared out a few dungeons, I guess. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, charity work. <laughs> um, downtime also provides resource sinks, right? Like 
in a lot of games, like it exists to funnel resources into projects in the world to give you agency. Yeah, I think you'll often have GMs sort of run into this complaint where they're like, I can't defeat my party because they're always so powerful every time they go into a fight. And, you know, most games have uh, this sort of attrition factor where you're supposed to have multiple fights or multiple challenges, at least, that drain your resources in some manner. And downtime's a really good way to do that in a way that doesn't feel like the party is necessarily like losing something that they want to be using later in the day or like in the next room. You're like, yes, I'm going to dedicate these resources of, you know, Maybe it's just time. It could be the gold that we found, um, you know, the the credits that we looted from that last starship. Um, we can pull in the contacts that we made or, you know, like I spent my, my plot point in order to make a connection with uh, an NPC. And now they're actually going to be useful in a way that they're not going to be able to help you in a combat scenario or, or even like inside your dungeon. Yeah. And I mean, like in terms of of how to think about this right like long-term project is is probably the way to think through these things of like a group of resources gets piled together in an abstract of like you have a goal after you tick six boxes right like that goal is realized um whether that project is gain an audience with the king or that project is you know uh replace the uh, weapon system on our star cruiser Gain an audience with the king so that he will replace the weapon system on our star cruiser. Well, now you're cooking with gas. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It doesn't necessarily have to be gaining material goods as well. Uh, One thing that our group likes to do a lot is to spend downtime doing research, whether that's just let's go to the library. It's time to find out all the lore that the GM put together that most of us have been ignoring. But Nope, we're getting steered to the library again because I spent a lot of time writing this stuff and you're sure as hell going to read it. Right. (laughs) Um, And like you mentioned in OSR games, recovery is a big part of your downtime, right? So it's uh, how do you recover your wounds or how do you recuperate and rest from those things? Uh, In in some story games, it's more like, like how do you recover stress, right? How do you decompress after a mission? Yeah, how do you stop losing sanity after you learned too much? Right. Uh, we talked about this last episode, actually, uh, with airships. Sometimes you need to fix not yourself, but your vehicle or your your material uh, possessions, your weapons, things like that. Uh, sometimes it's not as easy as running to the blacksmith, hitting repair, and just having a bunch of gold sucked out of your account, huh? <laughs> See, I know video games. <laughs> uh, first of all, you hit repair all. You should go be a simp. <laughs> but no, because then you spent all your money repairing the garbage you were going to sell anyway. That's a good sell point. Sell first, then repair. Mm. So I hear. I don't know. Uh, some games you want to repair first and then sell because you know adds more value. And then I think there's also an element of adding verisimilitude to your game right uh you mentioned at the beginning right is like how do you make this campaign which has actually about three weeks of mission time feel like an epic quest that takes years and is your life's work if you don't include downtime to sort of space those like acute moments of action out right um so that's you know the training and advancement element right like how do i become the greatest monk in the world well obviously it required a lot of discipline and training that i took time away from adventuring in order to put my mind to mastering yeah you'll get into a lot of situations as a player and a gm where you're given a reward that 
it doesn't make sense to be able to benefit from immediately. You need to spend some in-game time with it. Like, hey, I finally met a sword master who can teach me all the cool techniques so that I can, you know, enter this prestige class or whatever. It's probably not like a, a bell that rings and suddenly I know all these things. We probably need to hang out here for at least a month, you know, and that means everyone else needs something to do during that month. Um, and, you know, maybe someone else is going to take the shards of Narsal and reforge them into an actual real sword, you know? Yeah, that's how you get Glamdring, right? Yeah, that's how you get Anduril. I don't care. I know Gla Glamdring. Glamdring was in a cave. No, Glamdring was uh, that one is just uh, uh, what's his name? Sword. Gandalf sword. The wizard. Yeah. Yeah, in a cave. He found it in a cave. Oh, he uh, found from it. a box of scraps. Oh, sorry. That look. That's history. <laughs> Nobody cares about that. Nobody cares about where it came from. All that matters <laughs> is who holds it. Uh, and then you, if you have more enterprising adventurers, you might actually have a job and do work to actually um, get money. Or less enterprising adventurers. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, thief is a job, okay? <laughs> That's true. Yeah, so that one always kind of cracks me up. Um, like, uh, even in, like, 5th edition, um, is it was um, Morden Kanan's. No, no, it was... Um, Xanathar's guide that added the downtime activities is like kind of a, a blown out chapter and like doing your job was one of the downtime activities but it pays such a comically low wage that it's like what for nine coppers like why would I do this right um, but it is one of those those concepts of like part of your background probably involved a job like you could always go back to doing your job right like you can go back to being a longshoreman like they're always hiring people to carry cargo. Yeah, and you know, okay, you get a few coppers, but maybe maybe you're actually conducting research. Right. And, and the flip side of this, of course, is like some games like Warhammer Fantasy, um, that work, that job that you have in your downtime is actually how you survive being an adventurer, right? Like not only does it provide your skills, but it also provides you the money you need to get the gear you need to survive on your adventures because the world sucks and adventurers die. Yeah, and then, you know, in between uh combats you know when you are actually in the dungeon but not back in town resting for a month it makes story sense that you can fix your armor because all of this time you spent narrating how you work as a blacksmith i think that's the better value of of that kind of idea of doing your job right is it's just getting you back to zero to be ready to adventure mm -hmm. right and you can hand wave sort of the benefits of it because that's just hey that's paying your fare at the tavern that's uh that's you know covering your room and board that's covering your repairs it's getting your gear back and ready to go so speaking of that let's talk about what purpose uh, downtime serves in the narrative of the game the the in-game setting so most importantly is that it's a story downbeat right uh, if your if your adventures are mostly upbeat then your downtime is going to be the calm that comes before the storm it's where you regroup your thoughts you process what happened and then you prepare yourself for what's coming next yeah a game that's just go 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 all the time sort of blends together it's nice to have a change of pace you know, um, I think we sort of switch back and forth between like a four hour session that is 100 percent a combat session because we probably started in the middle of it or like we ended right as we rolled initiative. And then, you know, a few weeks later, we're going to have a session where probably nobody rolls any dice uh, just because that's the sort of the natural ebb and flow of the story. And, and then also just like, you know, the way that you want to play the game. Yeah. So this this happens a lot, I think. um, like if you think of a chase scene in movies, like I think it really highlights the value of these downbeats, right? Because like a chase is frantic, it's like adrenaline packed, like it's rapid 
camera cuts and like you know shaky cam and all of that stuff and then eventually like you hit the condition where you know the last cop car like crashes into the river or you know whatever like the last motorcycle assailant has been knocked off his bike and you're home free right and there's like that long like deep sigh of like okay we made it you need that sigh for the chase to be satisfying like only a couple movies have ever pulled it off without having that sigh and that that's basically uh fury road (laughs) and even then it had some downbeats in its pacing, right? Like they cleared a fight and then like had a moment to talk. Yeah, nobody wants a jarring smash cut into like next chasing. Right. It also gives you a really good opportunity to explore the hooks that have been laid down either in lore or in combat or exploration where you're finding tidbits about um the world and and also tidbits about the other characters or your character, you know, expressing like Here's how I interact with these goblins. Do I, you know, am I inclined to show mercy? Do I hate goblins because they killed my family? Like all of these things will come out in the more fast paced uh, scenarios, but then you can pull them out or like extend them into actual like real motivations or uh, explain elements of your backstory during these downtimes. Yeah. You can also do this with NPCs too. You're going to meet a bunch of people who are doing something for one reason or another. And if you're interested enough, you can try to delve in and find out why. And then during downtime, you explore that more, you exploit it, you leverage it, uh, any of those things. Yep. And then you can also, you know, rather than internally, you can direct that externally as well, right? So get the interpersonal role-playing scenes in your downtime. Um, You know, okay, now we're out of the dungeon. Uh, You and I are going to talk about why you shot that kobold who was leading us. Right. Like we were negotiating and you just killed them. We're going to talk about that. We're going to play that out in the tavern. Um, or, hey, you know, you saved me back there when you could have run. Uh, thanks, I guess. Yeah. This is one of the times when I really appreciate a game that has some downtime mechanics. Because, of course, you can do this in any game, but, you know, a traditional RPG like DD doesn't facilitate um, like talking over or debriefing after uh, a a combat or an adventure right um but something like um the band of blades you know you have the like sitting around the campfire scenes that are specifically there to talk about motivations and to work through some of the traumas that people experienced in combat yeah it's it's actually it's great um as a gm as you're going through the adventures to like pick out these moments as they happen knowing that you can't interrupt to explore them in the adventure but then be like hey do you remember when this happened as you're coming back to camp you this like this moment comes back to mind what do you do about that moment like what do you do about that memory right like just use that as a prompt if you can keep track of those things as a gm you can bring them back at a moment where it's more appropriate to kind of discuss them yeah and then sort of on the flip side of taking information that has been discovered during fast-paced scenes. During downtime, you can also set up new information that's going to be carried forward. Like someone thinks that, like a player thinks about and then explains why their character took an action or maybe sort of even like decides in the moment why their character took that action previously, assigns a motivation to it or whatever. And then you have other characters interacting with that. And now we have a shared narrative that going forward will come uh, out in our future combats when we meet goblins uh, again or when i'm in a scenario where like i can pay you back for saving my life it 
then informs the actions uh, that that are happening uh, in the game. And that's a great way to help with the quarterbacking problem as well, right? Like if you have players at the table who are inclined to say, no, you can't do that, right? Like, no, you can't kill that person. They're innocent. Uh, no, you can't, you know, fight them uh, or, or no, we have to talk to them or whatever, right? Or no, we can't talk to them. Like you can have those kind of moments like, fine you respect the agency of the player in the moment but then you still get to have the accounting for that moment afterwards at a more appropriate time yeah it doesn't mean there won't be consequences but maybe those consequences won't be when everybody has swords drawn right exactly and then the other piece of this is going to be using like downtime for plot setup right so it is the moment where you can introduce plot hooks right like the you know the impetus for your next adventure walks into town as well as prune old plot hooks that like maybe were of interest but now are sort of deprioritized right like you can close them off so you don't have to worry about them or leave them dangling um you know all of that to gather forward momentum into the next mission right so by the time downtime is over like the team is ready to go for the next thing like they're amped and hyped and like we're gonna go to that dungeon yeah, I like mixing these together. In downtime, you have the old plot threads or the information that you need to research, and the people who are good at that or interested in that go do that. Then you have these other people who are either looking for something to do or are setting up for uh, whatever the next mission is. You know, and all that's sort of happening at the same time. And then you know, some information informs the other. Uh, but everybody has something to do. Everybody's doing something useful, and then everybody's more prepared when you're moving on to whatever the next objective is. Yeah mechanically how do you use downtime so i think first things first you want to give the players a sense of how much downtime they have um whether that is in terms of like time right that kind of time boxes their actions you can't take a project that's going to take you a year if you've only got two weeks of downtime right so that that helps um as well as like the number of downtime cycles that you're expecting here so you know if your game has mechanics around downtime like cool you're going to get to take two downtime actions Right. So think of what you're going to do in those in that kind of framework, those terms. Yeah. And this um, doesn't necessarily need to be announced. Right. Like if you know your healing rate is three hit points per in-game week and everybody wants to get healed up to full, then you can do the math and know that, hey, I think we're going to be in town for four weeks. Then everyone can say, OK, what project am I going to take on to last me about four weeks? Right. Or, or otherwise. Right. Like you might just be able to not ever leave downtime right like some characters have enough agency that like they don't have to um like rogue traders for example are usually pretty content to just fly around and be rich um so you it helps to give them a narrative sense of like okay how long are we going to do this before it's time to like go back on our horse and ride off right and then on the flip side of that you have characters who have absolutely no agency like you're on shore leave here's how long your shore leave is your officer tells you establish the baseline right like ask the players what are they primarily spending their downtime doing like what is their default state you know um if that's work if that's drinking if that's um <laughs> you know pulling jobs on the side you know whatever it is like have the characters declare what their main thing is and then work with the players to figure out what that effect is going to be in the game yeah if you're working your job, it might be a few silver, right? If you're acting as a, you know, you're taking on jobs as a thief, it might be some silver or it might be spending some silver to bribe your way out of jail. Like maybe it's a higher risk, higher reward thing. 
Oh, a few silver a day, huh? Look at Mr. Moneybags over here, little, little cobbler with your fancy shoemaking and stuff, all right? I carry boxes, big heavy boxes. <laughs> For three coppers. <laughs> I love that this is a scenario where you can solve this sort of age-old problem of the rogue wants to do a side job and the rest of the party would like to get on with the adventure. Handle that stuff in downtime. Mm -hmm. You know, go off and, and pull your job or like have someone else come help you do this job because they think it might be fun to do a little B&E. And if you do get in trouble, then you have people right there who, you know, haven't been uh, sidetracked in the thing that they want to do, but they can probably swing by and bail you out with, you know, the money that the coppers weren't able to find on you. Yeah, I think th this is important to set the stakes of downtime as well. Um, generally, you're probably better off planning to add complications rather than necessarily like punishing or removing agency. Right, or right? dangers. Yeah, so like you don't want the rogue to pull a job, get caught, and lose a hand in their downtime because that's the punishment for thievery. Um, but the rogue might end up losing a significant portion of their money in order to bribe the guards to let them out of jail, you know? Um, or it might just, you know, maybe it isn't even that. Maybe it's just that they don't get any earnings from being a thief. Um, but you don't want them to, like, you just don't want to lose characters in downtime, right? Because it's not an adventure, and, and you don't kill characters off camera. And that's sort of what downtime is meant to be. Yeah, and you also don't want to get into a situation where the consequence is taking up too much spotlight. Like, if the rogue gets caught, that should be narrated, and obviously there shouldn't be, like, a, a deadly or incapacitating punishment. But you also don't want to get into an actual combat, because now you, you have effectively split the party. Your session is now just the rogue doing a side quest, and no one else can do anything. Right. And there's a certain kind of player where that's a reward for them for getting into to trouble and, like, making trouble. And now they'll just do that every single time because they get their own little combat. Exactly. Um, so generally, I would I would put the main risk as something like an urgent problem becomes your next adventure, or maybe like urgent timing means you need to leave and find your next adventure, um, rather than necessarily like that, right? Of rewarding a player with a solo spotlight moment that takes an hour, right? Um, and of course, like talk to your players about this because this is. Uh, in a lot of games like a murky area of the rules that isn't as well defined like set these stakes kind of openly above the table so people understand the game that they're currently playing right now right downtime is not the space to be trying to game the system uh, it's already probably going to be relatively hand wavy um, so you know power gamers don't do your uh, calculations don't pull out your spreadsheet and figuring out like exactly what is the you know, time to uh, value ratio in terms of what downtime activity you should be uh, taking on, no matter what your backstory might be. Like, actually lean into the things that your character would do because that will make it more fun because then you're going to bring up more plot hooks for yourself. Right. The next thing you want to do is kind of decide on how you're going to play the downtime, right? Like, usually you're not going to pick downtime like you do a dungeon, right? Like, you're not worried about discrete actions. You're not worried about, like, moment to moment. Um, so instead, like I prefer to just montage the key scenes or the key moments of the downtime, right? So like call for the scene. I want to see the scene after you've arrived back at the tavern for your reward and Jas and Thrak address the moment that they shared in the dungeon. Yeah, this can go as simply as basically going around the table 
and saying, what are you doing during downtime? What are you doing? What are you doing? And then the GM pulls it together in like a four sentence narrative uh, that, you know, ties it all together. And maybe people like see each other doing the thing in town or whatever. And then you can all come back together and talk about the consequences of those actions or make rules or whatever. Yeah. And, and, and depending on your game or and depending on the actions, like you might ask who helps you with that? Right. Mm -hmm. And then you set that scene as a moment of that person helping you with your activity. Right. And that, that way you're sharing spotlight between players. It's never one person in the GM. It's two people or three people working with the GM at a time. Right. And encourage other people to step in or connect their downtimes or have their downtime be affected by the consequences of someone else's downtime make your appropriate roles, right? So if you have mechanics for downtime, use those mechanics um, and then narrate what happens as a result of those mechanics. That narration might be a scene um, or it might just be cool. The outcome is this many silver over the course of this much time. Yeah, know your players and players make it clear what it is that you want here. You know, if you're trying to figure out your family lineage, then that probably requires a scene if you are successful on your role as you discover like who you were descended from. But if you're just trying to craft a magic item and you're like, this is a regular magic item, the rules say it's going to take me two weeks of downtime, like I'm an artificer and I like I just want to get this done with, then great just say hey you created awesome this isn't like some magical breathtaking moment for you this is like a thing that you know how to do and you're very good at it and success great you know what the next mission is is the gm so make sure that you're feeding plot hooks for that mission into the downtime so you know like that is an, a, a generally a routine thing that characters do is make magic items that requires a number of different things to do, right? You've got to go get all the materials. You've maybe got to get the, the spec for it. You've got to uh, find a forge. You've got to spend some time, right? Like you've got to decompress in a tavern at night and find a place to sleep and all those things. At any one of those moments for that character, you could pull in a plot hook that says, hey, you're a, an experienced whatever. I have this broken sword. If you could get this one thing for it, you could forge a great magic item right? Cool. There's your plot hook. Mm -hmm. All because you decided to do magic items is your downtime, right? And like now you, you've you like taken their thing, you've tacked it into like you've, you've grafted your thing onto it and now they have momentum to go forward. I would say this is definitely one of those times where you want to play like six or one half dozen. Like, you know, what every door you pick leads to the end boss. Like, you probably have a good idea of where the campaign is going next or the, you know, the players are telling you what they're interested in and then you're sort of like the GM is deciding where, where you're going to go next. If you look at the roles that characters are making, sometimes people roll really poorly and traditionally that means like you don't get a lot of information or you, you're sort of lost and don't know what's going on. Think about it in, in this way. If you like roll, if the character rolls really well, great. They have a lot of correct information about the location that they're going to go to next, which is the location where you want them to go. If they roll poorly, all they find out about is the location that they're going to go to next. They just don't have a lot of information about it. Right, exactly. Like, don't shoot yourself or the party in the foot by being like, well, in your downtime, you rolled poorly and now you have no idea what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. And also your sword broke and you can't make any magic items. Sorry, bad roll, campaign over. You're not <laughs> dead, you're just clueless. <laughs> Why don't we just give some quick tips as we kind of wrap this up for how to use downtime? My favorite thing to do is to involve the plot threads. And this doesn't always mean pulling every single one in. I've talked before about, you know, running a game in Eberron. There are so many plot threads. There, there's so much lore. You're always putting them back. Downtime's the perfect time to do that. If people are not interested 
in the lineage of the royal family, even though you've thrown it in front of them twice, just have it not be important, you know, or have the information they would have discovered from that way be discoverable in some other manner that they're much more interested in. Just prune it, right? Like um, they were interested in thing in a thing for a moment. They change their mind now. Uh, it's been, you know, a couple sessions or, or a few arcs, a few adventures since they've bothered with it. Like, hey, a caravan comes with news from where you were before. That plot has advanced past where you were. It's cool. Keep moving. Like you're, you're not dealing with the Kingdom of West anymore because you've left that. You can also use this to wrap up that plot there completely, even if they were interested. It's sort of nice to get a callback to a thing that they succeeded at. Hey, the Kingdom of West, like they just had a big celebration on the one year anniversary of the Queen's rule, that queen that you installed. Or if they're still interested in a thread and they just have not had a chance to go back to it, you can highlight that thread by like elevating it, you know, like either, hey, like the invading orcs have collapsed the northern front and the empire is scrambling, like they're calling for adventurers, right? Like, hey, maybe go back there. Or like, hey, actually, like, you know, you've been screwing around in this town all spring. Um, but fortunately, like bad storms kind of kept it at a standstill, like, but tensions are about to rise again, you know, maybe go back over there and, and see what's up. Right. Yeah. And players, this is the time to be asking about plot threads that you like vaguely remember and like, oh, wasn't there a thing in that cave that you mentioned? Like my character obviously remembers that because it was very important to them or whatever. But I don't recall because that was six months ago in real life. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> refresh everybody's memory. And that gives everyone an opportunity to be like, oh, wow, orcs are like invading from the north. That's super cool. Let's go do that. Or they can be like, meh, I don't know. That's not that interesting. Let's let's keep heading east. That was our original plan anyway. So in terms of resources, I think it's important if your game has explicit downtime resources. So things like Stars Without Number, Forge in the Dark, Gumshoe Games, for example, um, make sure that you're using those systems because those are part of the game you bought and they're part of the game that players are putting resources like their XP and, and choices into. Um, they are generally going to offer a little more structure to your downtime. So you might have to kind of improvise within that structure to kind of get the feel that you're looking for. But be careful spending resources that are typically allotted for adventuring or combat during your downtime. Um, the, the benefits that you get from them are often different. The refresh periods are often different. So you can use them usually much more often during downtime than you can while you're adventuring. Um, things get a a little more wonky when you're sort of stretching them out over the course of, you know, a week to a month. Yeah, like things like scrolls and potions, you know, like things that are discrete benefits in a dungeon, right? Like I was going to die, but I took this potion and I lived. Uh, they get the value gets a lot more nebulous in downtime. So just be careful in, in like playing and spending those kinds of resources. It, it's kind of a feels bad, especially if that becomes an important thing you're missing the next time you go on an adventure. Yeah, but also don't shy away from being able to leverage in combat abilities in ways that make sense. Like if you can normally cast Wall of Stone three times per day, that's cool when you're in the dungeon, you're going to use it when it really counts. But if you're if you have a month of downtime, that's 90 walls of stone that I can cast and those become permanent. I can build a castle. I mean, <laughs> at the level at which you have a month of downtime and you can cast wall of stone three times per day, maybe it's kind of cool to build a castle. <laughs> maybe you're going to upset the local landowner. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, then we'll just have a siege session. Why would I not do that? 
you're a problem player, Ishan, is what I'm saying. <laughs> it's, it's true. Actually, I built four castles, four small castles each week. It keeps getting knocked down. <laughs> because <laughs> the natural player behavior in downtime is going to be get as much as possible for free. <laughs> Make sure that, uh, like, if Ishan is building his own castle, that that fits the tone of the game right uh make sure that these things are aligned like in a hard scrabble world like grim dark like warhammer fantasy yeah you can't build a castle for free using your spells even if technically you could cast spells that would allow you to do that like no i mean that's because you're rolling lead. you're rolling 90 times on the psyker table well exactly <laughs> <laughs> but yeah like in higher level D D, right like you're right you have crazy magic you could do this like you can morden kanan's magnificent mansion your home every night <laughs> <laughs> right i can cast this 90 times or i can cast a seventh level spell once right <laughs> <laughs> downtime is great for building teleportation circles right like where you realistically at 17th level like in a lot of campaigns you could take a year off adventuring and like set up your teleportation circles so that you can get around town well not town but you know get around the country easier I mean, if I have a teleportation circle, I'm probably using it to get around town. Let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Downstairs, where the fridge is. Ugh, hold on. Exactly. <laughs> also, I'm a wizard. I have a fridge, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Morden Kanan's magnificent fridge. <laughs> it's Morden Kanan's magnificent freezer. Come on. <laughs> it's the entire plane of ice. <laughs> right. Another tip is when you call for scenes, deputize players right get more players involved in the scene so where it's possible give them npc roles uh to play like if there's you know ancillary characters secondary characters that are affiliated with the party those are great um allies are great because their their objectives tend to be aligned with the protagonist help them and have them build scenarios or settings or or lore you know okay the research is going to the library you tell me what the library looks like um, what what does the blacksmith offer here? What would make sense? And, you know, this is a great way to balance spotlight time, right? Like if the monk says, no, I'm spending three months uh, in isolation in order to work on my training, or the wizard says, no, I'm going to my tower because I'm going to research this spell, uh, I will not be bothered. Like, cool. Like that's a valid character choice, right? But this gives you a chance to get that player involved in downtime in a way that isn't just, uh, peace, I'm out. Maybe they are playing some other NPC. Maybe they're just describing to you what the monastery looks like. And now that is a part of the lore. And when everyone else goes to visit the monastery to get the quests, you know, three sessions from now, everybody already knows it. And that player was, you know, able to contribute something interesting. Yeah. Or yeah, flip it around. But the other players come and visit. <laughs> right. You know, like, uh, what do they see? What do you do when they come to visit? Right. This is a nice way. Players, this is a nice way to sort of involve your lone wolf characters or you're like your grumpy characters who like you know uh, in game don't get along but you know you want to make sure that you actually do get along in terms of telling a story um, you can still be involved in the process and the storytelling and and all of that and actually have some fun and still like maintain the the sort of like verisimilitude of your crotchety character yeah and this is one of the things by the way that i loved about band of blades um because you guys swapped characters so often mm -hmm. um like it was very easy to say, okay, who is going to play, you know, the the gruff sergeant character in this scene? Who is going to play it in this scene, right? Like, and, and so you, the person who most recently played them usually took that role, but it meant that some people got to give a slightly different twist on a character, right? Or or did a different interpretation, and like it built like kind of a richness of what the uh what the whole like legion looked like. 
um, you know, they weren't one note characters, uh, even though you guys did kind of like s- kind of solidly maintain your ownership of like your command characters, right? It also meant that players were spending a lot more energy paying particular attention to what those characters were doing when they were not playing them because you knew that you might play them at some point or you were already really attached to that character, but someone else was playing them. Yeah, it also, I liked that it gave us a chance to give very open-ended scenes. Um, You know, like if, you know, two of the players had an obvious kind of like um, back at camp scene that needed to be resolved and then it was just like, cool, like who's another character we want to like see? Um, You know, kind of like, hey, Ishan, um, you know, you played this character last, so like this will be your scene. Who is a character that they would interact with back at camp? Like Mm -hmm. you pick that character and it's like, cool, fourth player, like, you know, uh, Amber, like, cool, you're up. Um, you're going to play the character that Ishan's character is now interacting with. Like, and that way, like, all four of you have been involved in the scene. Keep in mind that the amount of downtime in your campaign is going to highlight how important downtime is in your game. Um, you know, if you do downtime every once in a while and it's really just sort of like mop up or, or wrap up or like exposition, then it won't be all that important. And the the things that you do or the way that you handle it um, can be a much more loose uh, and isn't going to have nearly as big an impact on the story. In Rug Trader, downtime was, some would argue, the entire game. <laughs> Since your level of actual adventure was very small. It was, it was very much like, uh, we have to go on to the planet it was very hard to get you off of your ship of course it was (laughs) (laughs) the ship has all the guns (laughs) it's like uh wait you mean we can't glass this problem even in like eberron right like downtime like long periods of downtime were actually really limited like we might have a week or two of downtime or even a month but the that wasn't the focus, right? Like our, our, it was always driving our mission forward. It was we were lucky to get a break in our mission to catch up on some things, rather than our missions were a break from our downtime that we really love. Yeah, you, you in uh, Morning Glory, you were always like gunning for downtime so that you could do research, so you could either like build resources, put something together, or figure out you know how to defeat the next opponent because like you would have the name of an opponent, but you wouldn't know like how to kill them. Yeah, and and like we would cover that downtime in half a session, maybe a whole session, like once in a while. Um, whereas like in Rogue Trader, we spent three or like we would spend a month in downtime because you guys were happy to keep fucking around. Yeah, <laughs> it's safe up here in right. downtime. <laughs> and so we did a lot of role playing, right? Like I mean, and and uh, role playing and shopping. <laughs> you know, the two main things you do as a rogue trader. Right. It turns out you can't die during downtime. So hey, <laughs> right. <laughs> But you can have massacres. <laughs> <laughs> so to kind of wrap this up, like I, I really think downtime is is one of those elements that gets uh, underplayed in a lot of like game books, but is actually one of the like low key like highlights of a of a well constructed like long term campaign. Um, you know, I wouldn't highlight it a lot in a shorter campaign, but I think it really does like enhance uh, an otherwise good plot and and kind of really make it great yeah it's one of those things where a lot of systems don't even have any rules or even really mention downtime they just assume it's a thing that you'll probably do if it makes sense in your story but i highly recommend just trying it it doesn't need to be for an entire session but you know have a like moderated like a well moderated um 
session that is probably mostly devoted to downtime or at least starts off on it and like mix some mechanics in and just see how it goes because I think you're going to find that it's really fruitful in terms of wrapping things up and then figuring out what people want to get out of the next arc that you're planning. And it's a time for conversation. It's a bit like a mini session zero where you can all sort of like regroup, uh, rethink, and then, you know, get all on the same page again. Yeah, that's another good way to think of it is like a, a second swing at a session zero for your next arc. All right. Do you hear that, Ishan? Yeah. And we're going to need to have a sit down around this fire to talk about it at length. All right. Well, if we're sitting around a fire, I'm going to use it to make a forge. So let's move on to the character creation forge. Before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sans Carne. That's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. And join the conversation on Discord. There's a link in the show notes. Hey, it's your pal Mike Shea from the website Sly Flourish and author of the books The Lazy Dungeon Master and Sly Flourish's Fantastic Locations. I'm going to be hosting a brand new show on the Don't Split the Podcast Network called The DM's Deep Dive. Each month, I'll be talking to a member of the D&D community about a particular topic of the game like encounter design, tools for improvisation, and game pacing. You can subscribe to the show through iTunes, on Twitch, or on YouTube. Join me and we'll all work together to make our games fantastic. All right, so today in the Character Creation Forge, we are building the Herbalist. Okay, so uh, besides running a dispensary, Shane, what does the Herbalist do? Uh, so the Herbalist is that sort of folk healer kind of archetype, right? The one who goes out into the surrounding area, picks a bunch of flowers and roots and mushrooms and animal bits and like creates your poultices and your, your kind of folksy healing options so a healer but not a cleric correct all right what's the build is alchemist artificer 11 land druid 9 i'm happy to see quite a bit of druid in here from you <laughs> yeah well it's land druid so don't get too <laughs> excited i love land druid it's uh it gets seventh level spell slots and fifth level spells known uh, and then, yeah, so from Artificer at first level, you get Magical Tinkering, which lets you have magical toys. I think that's just sort of the, like, I don't know, whatever. Like, herbalists aren't necessarily non-magical. It's just that they kind of have a primitive magic, right? I not mean, like, you can make leaves glow and things like that. It's yeah. cool. Why not? Yeah. Uh, you'll get eight magical infusions, which let you imbue magic items. I, I like that as sort of imbuing it with a power of nature, right? Like a, a slight enhancement. They're relatively low level anyway. Yeah, and you can do things like make gear that makes your foraging easier, right? Like you make a cloak of the manta ray, you stick it on, and now you can like forage for uh, like pearls that you need or whatever. Right. So the alchemist subclass gets spells like healing word, Melf's acid arrow, and mass healing word. And your expel experimental elixir you can use twice per short rest uh, or spend a spell slot and get one. And that will give a small minor bonus and then eventually some extra temp HP to uh, whoever drinks it. The experimental elixir is really like that's your poultice, right? Like that's that's your herbal remedy is is what's in that elixir. Um, I, I would reflavor some of them as like actual healing poultices rather than necessarily potions, but the idea is the same, right? Like you use this thing and it gives you a supernatural advantage. Um, at level five, you'll get alchemical savant, which lets you add your intelligence bonus to healing or damage spells. 
Flash of Genius lets you use your reaction to add your intelligence modifier to you or another creature's ability check or saving throw up to intelligence modifier times a day. This is one of the best abilities that artificers get. Uh, it also means that if you're making a check to see how well you you made a poultice or something like that, uh, then you're almost definitely going to succeed when you need to. Yeah, and it also, I think, gives you that kind of sense of like the herbalist, like, mm, like primitive wisdom sort of idea, you know, because you're not necessarily going to be that wise, <laughs> you know, like even though you you have druid levels. So it, it gives you a way of kind of like being that like smart advisor to the town kind of concept, right? Um, and then at level nine, like you mentioned, we'll get restorative reagents, which means whenever you use an experimental elixir, you also gain 2d6 plus intelligence temporary HP. Uh, it also lets you cast lesser restoration without a spell slot or preparation up to intelligence times per day. At level 10, you'll be able to attune to four magic items and then your sort of alchemist capstone here, you get spell storing item, pick a first or second level artificer spell and you can put it in an item and then cast it basically 10 times a day. Yeah, and that's a, that's a great use for like a, a healing spell, right? To, to give it to somebody. It's like, hey, use this. It's imbued with magic of healing poultices and healing herbs. Go forth and heal people. Then from Land Druid, uh, second level, we get everything. <laughs> so you get Wild Shape, which will eventually get up to CR1 with a flying or swimming speed. You'll get an extra Druid cantrip. Uh, what we're really here for, natural recovery. So you can regain half of your Druid level spell slots on a short rest. Uh, you can use these spell slots, of course, to power more experimental elixirs, which eventually also add temp HP. So you get a nice little cycle going there. Um, and then you have a choice of your circle. So look at the circle spells, look at where you're from, figure out what makes the most sense. Uh, I'll highlight Grassland gets Invisibility and Haste, which gives you some nice buff spells, uh, which is probably going to be your role in combat, is making infusions and healing and buffing people. Yeah, but I think pretty much all of the uh, different terrains, all the land options, have some good spells in there. So any anything that makes sense with your character is also going to work. Yeah. And then you get land stride, uh, no movement penalties in non-magical difficult terrain, which comes up more often than you might think. So in terms of leveling order, I think I would actually start Druid 5. It just gives you a really strong base because um, low-level Druids are, are pretty solid. Then take all of your Artificer levels and then finish out Druid 9. So you'll cap at land stride. That seems fitting. So before we wrap up, let's take a moment and thank our Patreon supporters. Your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. And I forgot to mention at the top, but just a shout out to uh, Jene Sasquatch uh, from the Discord, who I believe is also a patron, uh, for suggesting the topic of downtime activities. You can also leave us a five-star review on iTunes. It is the best way to support us and to help other people find the show. And if you do, we will read it on the air. So we used to have a service that scrubbed all of our uh, or scraped all of our iTunes reviews and emailed them to us that we used to find out when we got new reviews to read. We didn't realize that it hasn't been working for about a year. <laughs> <laughs> so this review is from a year ago, <laughs> July 6, 2019. This is Sitting with Friends at the Game Store Talking by Icosahedron20. I'm only 50 episodes in, but already I can say I've implemented at least half a dozen suggestions and topics they've talked about. I haven't had that much inspiration and many ideas from a single source in a long time. 
Shane and Ishan complement each other well, and their banter is not too distracting. Their advice is valuable and comes from experience. They definitely have preferences for styles of play that come through in their advice, but their opinions don't invalidate other perspectives, and they acknowledge the other views. Their campaign summary of Eberron is perhaps the most understated segment, but it often germinates more ideas from me than the advice does. However, I am constantly energized by the character creation forge also, using it to construct NPC enemies for my players. Also, the little details like the bloopers edits at the beginning and the name of the Mundangerous lair from which they are recording are nice touches that help the immersion. Best thing I can say is that it's like sitting with a couple of friends at the game store and just talking. I mean, in these days of a pandemic, I miss sitting at the game store and doing anything. <laughs> yep. Thank you for the uh, the nice words, Icosahedron20. You know, Shane, we also just recently got our first one-star review. We did? Oh, we made it. Yeah, we did. I, I feel like we made it, Yeah. right? Someone cared enough to actually like figure out what their Apple ID was and then log on and then click one star and then actually write a review. Apparently, they don't like our jokes and don't think that we give enough advice, which oh. is sort of like the, I don't know, the opposite of mostly what I hear, which is too much advice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who hurt you, one-star reviewer? Who hurt you? <laughs> it was us. We did it. <laughs> All right. What do we have planned for next week's episode? We're talking about using undead. And in the character creation forge? We're building the twice damned. Well, that's it for episode 253 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>